All right, Matthew chapter 21 is where we are going to be heading this morning. So as you make your way to Matthew 21, uh, let me just remind you where we have been through the gospel of Matthew. And today we are going to cover a lot of ground, so we're going to drop the clutch on this bad boy, and we're going to hit a lot of scripture, but you're going to hopefully see why we cover so much ground as it's all uh, tied together under the theme of authority. How appropriate for Father's Day, we're looking at uh, who is the authority ultimately in your life. But again, back to the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience to lay out for them that Jesus, that Jesus is their long-awaited uh, Jewish Messiah, the Mashiach, the Savior of the world. So as he does that in chapters 1 through 10, he writes showing the revelation of Jesus at his first coming. The king is revealed there for the people. And then verse or chapters 11 through 13, we see the reaction the people have. Uh, they don't welcome him with open arms, but instead they resist the king. And so this resistance leads to a retreating for King Jesus. He, he heads off to other areas, to the Gentile people, to people that want to hear the message and share in that. And so he retreats, but as he does, he takes his disciples along with him. And he takes uh, the 12 there, and they're able to actually learn. They get a, an education, a three-year college degree from Jesus University as they travel around with him through those six chapters. But now, where we're going to arrive to in chapter 21, today we see the rejection. Their resistance has led him to retreat, and now it's led to a full-on rejection of Jesus. He's going to enter into the city triumphantly here in just a moment. We're going to see in chapter 21. But before we do, I wanted to ask this question. Because the issue for the nation of Israel is really that um, their king came, but he didn't come in the package that they thought he was going to come in. <laughs> He didn't come in the manner that they expected. He didn't come in the way that they expected. And so the first question to just ponder on, uh, no worries, it's a rhetorical question, so we aren't taking a quiz afterwards. But the question is, have you ever put an expectation on how God would handle something in your life, and then what happens if he doesn't meet it in that way? You see, God's so good. He's able to answer our questions and hear our cries, but oftentimes his answers come in much different packages. For these people, they're going to be excited about Jesus entering into the city. But what they're mostly excited about is that he is going to drive out the Romans. The Roman Empire had oppressed them. And so politically, economically, physically, they wanted relief from the Romans. They were ready for King Jesus to come in and whoop some Roman hiney. Like, that's what we're most excited about. But yet he doesn't answer their cries in that way. And I think about how many times I've prayed... I've been so diligent about praying, God, answer this thing for me, and then he does, but it's not in the way that I expect. And so for these folks, um, they take that answer, and they actually reject Jesus because it was not in the package that they wanted it to be in. And so chapter 21, verse 1, reads like this. And now when they drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And so we see this triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time he'd ever been to Jerusalem, but this is the first time he entered into the city as king. He actually allowed them to proclaim him as their Messiah. 
And this is also uh, important for a few different reasons. And we went into more of this uh, on our Easter message, by the way. So if you want to go back and listen to any of the recordings on the website or the podcast, I'd encourage you to do that. We covered it in more detail than what we can today. But what we see is this is an exact fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. There in Daniel chapter 9, he says that it's going to be a 69 weeks of years or 173,000 880 days from the time the command is given to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes. And if you do the math, uh, no worries, someone smarter than me did the math, that leaves you at April 6th, uh, 32 AD, the exact day that Jesus walks into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly as king. And so often I have to be reminded that God is always right on time in my situation. So we see this exactly playing out. Now, this is also significant because this week is Passover week for the nation of Israel. Going back to Passover being instituted there in Exodus chapter 12, that was the time when God sent the nation of Israel uh, under this Passover out of the land of Egypt. And there we see them giving, getting the command to continue this feast of Passover, this time where they would actually bring a lamb into their household They would bring the lamb in, and for four days, they would inspect the lamb. They would make sure the lamb was without spot, without blemish, because God only wanted a perfect sacrifice. And then on the fourth day, they would actually uh, kill the lamb and have themselves a a dinner. And, And they would take the blood of the lamb after they've eaten dinner, and they would put it on the wood post. They would actually take the blood on the wood would be the reason that their house was passed over. And so you see the significance to what was taking place here for the nation of Israel. Now, John the Baptist makes it very clear that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here we see John the Baptist declaring that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and now here's King Jesus walking in exactly four days before Passover to be inspected by the nation. And so for four days, they're going to question him and quiz him and and seemingly interrogate him. But in fact, what they were doing is fulfilling prophecy, that that he would be inspected just as the lamb was to be for the nation being called out of Egypt. Now, uh, you might ask yourself, why does it take four days to inspect the lamb? I mean, surely this could be done in 30 minutes or an hour. You could do a little checkup, make sure the lamb's all good. All right, he's ready to go, ready to be a sacrifice. And I would submit to you that the reason that they were to have the lamb in the house for four days was to make it personal. Because if you bring an animal into your house, fathers, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to attach to it. So after four days, uh, what happens is he's got nicknames. He's now called Lamb Chop and Little Lammy. And and all these things that kids begin to love about the lamb, but then uh, what happens is four days later, you have to slit the lamb's throat. And then the kids begin to realize the impact of our sin in their life. And the same thing for mom and dad is they're no doubt dealing with the emotion of killing this lamb that they've just brought into the house a few days before. It's also laid out there for us in Exodus 12. If you've ever looked at that passage, what you notice is there's something different about the language in each of these different verses. In fact, in Exodus 12, verse 3, they're told to take a lamb according to their household. But then in verse 4, they're told to take uh, the lamb for their household, only to be followed up by verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. 
You see, this is the process that we're to go through with the Lamb of God. That you've heard about a lamb, but it's to be more personal than that. Uh, A lamb becomes, the lamb becomes your lamb. That's who Jesus died for specifically. It was for you, and it was for me. It was a personal investment that he decided to make willingly on our behalf. And so, as we talked about in the introduction, uh, what we see is Jesus is now coming into the town, he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, and he's allowing honor to actually be bestowed upon him. And we may wonder, why did he decide now is the right time? Because other times he performs these miraculous things, and what's he tell people? Don't let anybody know it was me. Keep quiet about this. Be quiet. But this time he decides to make a great declaration. And I believe in large part it's because he did not want them to have any excuses. <laughs> so that no one could say, I never, never heard about that Jesus. I had no idea about Jesus. I had no idea that, that there was a Savior out there for me. He didn't declare himself to me. So here's Jesus. He's essentially eliminating any and all excuses. Romans chapter 1 says that nature itself declares the glory of God. That If you want to know that God exists, go look around. Take a look outside, and you'll see his divine nature in the trees and in the clouds. You'll begin to understand that there is a God, but will he become your God? That's the question. Now then back to the text at hand in chapter 21, uh, picking up in verse 4. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Remember the key word in the book of Matthew is the word fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, in verse 5, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see a, an exact fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, predicted about Jesus 500 years before he would walk into Jerusalem at this time. And yet he didn't come in uh, proudly and boasting, he came in in humility, riding on a, a donkey. Lowly, we're told, sitting on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this was his uh, first coming. His second coming is going to look far different when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. In fact, uh, uh, John the Revelator writes in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so the second coming of Jesus is going to look far different than this. But what I wanted to remind you of is that we have an, an opportunity here to be humble. To humble ourselves because the, the alternative is uh, all will be humbled. <laughs> so either we humble ourselves in this life or we will be humbled in the life to come. Now for the people, they're excited they begin to cry out in verse 6. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They bring the donkey back, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on him and set him, Jesus, on the donkey. And a very great multitude spread out their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches uh, from the trees and spread them out on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, that means save now. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they cry out to Jesus, save now. And what's Jesus' name? That's his Greek name. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which literally translated means Jehovah is salvation. 
They're saying, get to it, Lord. Your name says Jehovah's salvation. Start saving us right now. But as I mentioned in the introduction, it wasn't the way that he expected. He didn't come to wave a magic wand. He didn't come to just simply snap his fingers. Instead, what he came for was to die for the most important thing. That was our sins. So whatever he would have fixed in this temporary life, in this temporary world, it wouldn't have fixed the actual issue, which was we have an S-I-N problem. We're all infected. And so Jesus came to lay his life down for that. And for this reason, for this reason, it's important for us to remember this. If he never does another thing for you, if he never answers another prayer, if he never uh, blesses you in any other way, for this and this alone, he is worthy of praise. Because all we did was we gave him our filth and our wretchedness and our black hearts. And what he did was he gave us a perfection. He took it upon himself. And so for this alone, he deserves our praise. Now then continuing on in verse 10. And when he came, and when he had come to Jerusalem, the city was moved. And they said, who is this? This word uh, moved in the Greek is the word asios. It's where we get our word seismic. And so you begin to get the understanding that as he comes into Jerusalem, it's like an earthquake had actually hit the city. The city was moving. It was palpable. You could feel it. Now remember, this is the Passover feast. And so a town that had maybe two or 300,000 people typically now is filled with two and a half to three million people is what Josephus said at the time of Jesus. And so millions of people, it's, it's an active feeling there that is in the city of Jerusalem. And so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And so they're moved emotionally. But the problem is for the people, they had emotion, but they had no devotion. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to have emotion towards Jesus, by the way. If he moves on your heart and you, and you feel emotionally moved, you, you get moved to tears, that's awesome. But if it's not followed up by devotion, it's just a feeling. And it just is going to simply go away like all other feelings. They're going to come and they're going to go. And this is the case for the people. Verse 12, And then Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to, into the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, save now the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus replied to them and said, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. He quotes there from Psalm chapter 8. And so we see Jesus coming into the temple now for a second time. The first entry into the temple where he came in and cleansed it was in John chapter 2. Years later, he comes back into the temple, and what does he see? All the same things that were set up there before. There were money changers. There were people uh, selling animals. And now many would say and take this passage and, and make it a reason why a church should never do a fundraiser. By the way, that's not at all what this passage is saying. This isn't saying, church, never do a fundraiser, never have any money in the church building. The issue at hand is uh, they were actually taking advantage of the people. 
Folks who come in from all over Israel, they were required, men were specifically required to come into the city of Jerusalem for this Passover feast. And because they would travel from long distances, it was hard to bring an animal with you from a days and days journey. I mean, think about how hard it is to travel with your kids, right? It's a big pain in the butt. And so they're like, it's even harder to travel with kids and animals, so if you've taken a dog anywhere, you understand this. They've got to pee at the rest stop, and you're out there, and you've got a bag because you want to be kind, and yeah, it's, a, it's a giant pain. And so they would come into the city of Jerusalem, and they would look to purchase an animal to be used there for a sacrifice for their family. And then the, the priests had this set up where you would buy a temple-approved, a priest-approved stamped sacrifice and oh, by the way, it's about four times the value that you'd find anywhere else. It's like going to Bush Stadium, right, and buying those nachos because when they come in a helmet, they should be $25. I mean, I can go buy nachos at the Quickie Mart down the street for 3 bucks, but this is in a helmet. It's so much better when it's in a helmet. And so this is precisely what's taking place. They're taking advantage of the people who just wanted to come and serve the Lord. And then they had money changers. Why? Because Roman currency is filthy. We can't have Roman currency in here in our offering boxes. You need the pre-approved temple shekel. That's what you have to use. And oh, by the way, the exchange rate, it's about three to one. And so you're going to need to cough it up a little bit. And so we see what Jesus walks into is this. And now we find why he came. He actually came and turned his attention not towards the Romans, but towards the church, towards the temple, towards the religious leaders who had built a system to take advantage of God's people. And here we see little Jesus, meek and mild. He wasn't afraid to fashion a whip and turn some tables over and drive some people out that were taking advantage of his children. Now, turning that back into uh, ourselves in modern day, what does this look like? Well, what uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then, as we make it more personal, I have to think how many times God has had to come into my temple and begin to turn over tables and drive things out and wrecked things that I was so sure I wanted to hang on to. Maybe things that I'd even lied to myself about and taken advantage of. And so what we see is uh, Paul's actually making this clear. The Holy Spirit is going to reside in you. God himself is going to reside in you. So how are you going to take care of your temple? And how, church, are we going to take care of ourselves corporately? What does Jesus say about the temple of God or about his church? Uh, I put four things up there. He says this, that the church is to be a place, or our temples, our personal bodies are to be a place where uh, prayer permeates. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's the first thing he lists. And so we are, as a people, to be a people of prayer. 9.15, every Sunday morning, we have intercessory prayer. You all are welcome to it. If corporate prayer freaks you out a little bit, here's the thing. Just come and sit and listen. You don't have to pray. Nobody's going to stare at you awkwardly until you do. The, the thing is, as we exercise this prayer muscle, you know what it leads us to do? Pray. The, prayer is like that. As we pray, we get more comfortable with prayer. 
and we begin to have this relationship with God, it changes things. In our house, our people, our body is to be a house of prayer. The second thing is, in verse 14, we see, and then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is to be a place where people are helped, where healing happens, where we get outside of ourselves and take the focus off of ourselves, and we look to others. What can I do to step into your situation to help you? I want to come alongside you. I want to see people healed. Specifically, I want to see people healed of the dreaded SIN disease. I want to bring you back to the foot of the Father. You need to have this thing corrected. And so there were many that were brought to him, and they were healed of their physical conditions. We are to be a house where spiritual conditions are healed and physical conditions and needs are met. Thirdly, we see in verse 15 that the house of God is to be a place where his power is revealed. And so we see his power being revealed. The chief priests and the scribes, they saw it. They saw wonderful things that he did. And the people crying out, do you hear these things? Do you see it? God's power actually being revealed. Church is to be a place where you as saints are actually to be equipped for the work of the ministry. That's why we do church. Would we love to see lost people come in and brought to know Jesus? Absolutely. I would love to get to lead people to Christ. It's an awesome thing to be a part of. But specifically, what we're called to do week in and week out is to equip the saints That's a sinner saved by grace for the work of the ministry. You're the evangelistic outreach of the church. You have way more reach in the community than I do. And so this is what we're called to be. And then in that, God's power is actually revealed. It's the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that actually overcomes Satan. That's what Revelation 12.11 says. Why? Because it's all in the power of the Lamb. His blood is the thing that covers us. And when we begin to share the work that God's done in our lives, personally, specifically, people connect to that. They go, boy, I want to know about that thing. Man, I didn't know you were that jacked up. (laughs) That's usually what happens. Man, you're messed up. I want to know more about that God that can change you. That's powerful. And so, uh, finally, God's house is to be a house where praise happens. And so I was running out of words that started with the letter P. And so I came up with, is my house a house where praise is prolific? The proliferation of praise. Right? So is my house a house where praise just happens? It just bubbles up to the surface naturally. I want to encourage you for your house to be like that, where praise just takes place, where something happens and you just get a shout out of praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Right? That's what we're called to be as a church specifically. And who does Jesus say are those that lead in the praises? Look with me in verse 16. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Out of our children. Did you hear the front row this morning? I mean, they were completely off key. (laughs) They were. It wasn't close. But you know what? Jesus received it. He loved it. That's powerful. This house needs to be a house where we, we as parents follow along the kids. They're not afraid to praise the Lord. They're, they don't even care that they're off key. It doesn't matter. They're praising their heavenly Father. Nursing infants are crying out for him. And so may our house be a house where praise is prolific. Continuing on then in verse 17. And then he left them 
and went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. And so the city of Bethany uh, might sound familiar. It's actually the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead, they lived just a couple miles outside of town in Bethany. And so Jesus was staying there during this Passover time because it was his only opportunity to get away from the mobs and the crowds. And so he goes back out to Bethany, and this is where he stays. And then the next morning we read in verse 18, And now in the morning he returned to the city, and he was hungry. Apparently Martha forgot to make breakfast. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And so Jesus, the next morning, naturally, by the way, proving that he was 100% human, he's a little hungry for some breakfast. And what does he see along the way? But he sees a fig tree. Now, he goes up to the fig tree, and he expects to find fruit, but what he finds is only leaves. Now, uh, this would seem like just any old story to us and, and cause us to wonder why in the world did Jesus curse this poor tree that just didn't happen to have any fruit? I mean, did Jesus love a fig newton as much as I do, right? You guys know what it's like to eat a fig newton, right? It, it, you start with one, it's not even that great. The next thing you know, you ate a whole sleeve, and you feel a little bit ashamed of yourself, but they're awesome. Like, they're tremendous. And so Jesus is rolling up on this spot, and he expects to find a fig, but he only finds leaves. And, and when you do a little bit of research, what you find is the fig tree is actually one of the few trees that grows a fruit even before it grows a leaf. And so they have what they call the first fruits of the fig tree that come out, and then the leaves develop after the fruit uh, actually is grown and, and prior to ripening. And so Jesus looks, he sees the leaves, he expects the fruit. And so the reason he's upset is the fig tree is a hypocrite. <laughs> it had leaves, but it had no fruit like it was supposed to. Now symbolically, the fig tree throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the nation of Israel. And so Jeremiah 24 is one such example. God gives Jeremiah this vision. It's a basket of good figs and a basket of bad figs. And God says to Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, figs. <laughs> I see good figs, and I see bad figs. And God goes on to say, the bad figs are the bad fruit of Israel. I'm going to cast them off. Because I'm going to take the good figs, and I'm going to actually secure them for the future. I'm going to take them away to Babylon, and I'm going to bring them back. And so throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree and figs are a picture of the nation of Israel. And what we find is the real criticism here. What Jesus is actually saying is that Israel produces leaves, but there is no fruit. I've looked here on this tree, and there's no fruitfulness for the nation of Israel. And so because of that, this is, by the way, the only place in the New Testament where Jesus curses anything. He curses Israel because they did not have any fruit. And what fruit did they truly lack? They lack love. And this is true in our lives as well. We are called to be a tree that actually produces fruit. Lots of times we get excited about our leaves. We get all fired up because, hey, I went and worked at the food pantry. I got some leaves going on. I helped out a neighbor. Look at my leaves. Look at all the works that I can create, I can generate. But the reality is there is no fruit. Galatians chapter 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, period. When you bite into the fruit of the Spirit, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And so we get all excited about our leaves, all excited about all of our works, but if we don't have love, which is why Paul was so diligent to address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you don't have love, you're a clanging brass or a sounding gong. Gong. That's us without love. There's no music. There, there's, no, there's no impact to the kingdom. And so this is precisely what Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's going to be cursed. Israel didn't know the time of their visitation. In Luke's account, he actually wept over Israel as he went in because he said, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known the hour of your visitation, it's at hand, but you did not. And so because of that, what happens? Just about 40 years later in 70 AD, the Romans come in and totally obliterate the nation of Israel. They leave no stone upon another. In fact, even the olive trees that are there in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you go over with us to Israel when we take a tour, you'll see these beautiful olive trees. But the reality is they're about 2,000 years old because the Romans wiped them all out. Everything was decimated. Families were killed in the streets. This is what Jesus is crying over because they did not know their Savior when he arrived. Now then in verse 21, we see in contrast to this, Jesus tells them what it's like to be fruitful. He says, Jesus answered them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be moved and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And so Jesus says, in contrast to this hypocritical fig tree, I want you to produce fruit. I want you to have love in your life. And because of that, if you have fruit and you pray and you have faith, you can move mountains. Now, this verse has been taken out of context and used by many a denomination who has said, if you just name it and claim it, if you believe it, you'll receive it. But remember, who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. A disciple is a disciplined follower of Christ. So he's not speaking to the multitudes and the groups at large. He's speaking to this specific group that was determined to follow after him and to live according to the law of Christ, the law of love, loving God, loving people. And the more you grow in love, and the more you grow in prayer, what happens is it's this amazing thing. Your will actually begins to be aligned with God's will. And where his will takes place, so then will your will take place. His will is always accomplished. So the more I can line myself up with the will of God in prayer and in faith, uh, mountains don't stand a chance. <laughs> Nothing can stand against you because you now are operating in the will of the Father. That's the key to what Jesus is sharing with these people. Now then in verse 23, and now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders, he's coming back now for this next day to teach again in the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Remember the day before, Jesus had just flipped the tables over and drove out the money changers. Whose pocketbook did he affect? The chief priests, 
They were the ones that set up this whole scam, this whole system. And so he'd affected their finances in a big way. And so the, the question they have is, by whose authority are you working under? Jesus replies to them in verse 24, and Jesus answered and said to them, I will, all, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, he says, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And so Jesus is going to lay down the gauntlet. You've got questions for me. I'm going to ask you one simple question. If you can answer it, I'll answer your question. And so then in verse 25, they reason among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But then if we say from men, we fear the multitudes for they count John as a prophet. And so they've got a quandary on their hands. And so they replied to him, uh, they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> so you don't know the answer. Why? Because if we acknowledge that John the Baptist was baptizing by God, sent from heaven, then guess what? He's going to say, why didn't you believe it, you jokers? But then if we turn it around and say, John's not a prophet, we don't believe in him. The multitudes, they love John the Baptist. This crazy man out in the wilderness, they're going to stone us. They're going to run us right out of town. And so they, they have to say we have no idea. And therefore, Jesus doesn't have to answer their question. But what he goes on to do over these next three parables, after telling him he's not going to answer their question directly, he goes on to indirectly answer their question. He is not interested, by the way, in being mysterious with us for the sake of mystery. He wants to answer your questions. The problem is, if he just answers it so simply and so clearly, we continue to come back to him like he's a genie. And what he wants us to do is actually seek him and seek his face and turn to him and turn to his word so he can share with us as we begin to learn more about his character. And so he's going to share with them where his authority comes from, and, and he's going to do it in three ways. He's going to say, I get my authority from the Father and from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. He's going to do it in three distinct parables, beginning in verse 28, as we look at the authority of the Father. But what then uh, do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. And then he came to the second and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. Yes, sir, here I go. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when, when you saw it, you did not afterward relent. And believe. Remember, when they saw Jesus, these chief priests, they were indignant. He was healing people. They were ticked off about it. That's precisely what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to know where I get my authority, I get my authority from the Father. He's the one that commanded the workers to go out into the vineyard. If you want to know the vineyard references, you can, by the way, in homework, go to Isaiah chapter 5. He lays out this beautiful picture about the nation of Israel being the vineyard. And so this would have recalled in their mind. He knows they're talking about them. 
And so he says, which one of these two did the will of the Father? The first son, he goes off and lives some kind of wild lifestyle. He says, look, I'm not going to listen to what you say, Dad. I'm going to go live it up. And so now we have tax collectors and thieves and robbers and whores, and they're all out there. But then they, they realize that life is empty. And so they regret their life, and they come back to Jesus. And what, what do they do? They do the will of the Father. And so that's precisely who he's saying is going to inherit the kingdom of God. But you, you said you're going to do the will of the Father, and yet you're doing nothing. You're operating a Ponzi scheme here in the, in the temple. And so for those people, they're going to be cast off. And so the most unlikely characters I put here on the slide, they're the ones that actually come to Jesus. Why? Because they're the most broken. And over and over and over again, I see this, and I've experienced this in my own life. I think it's just our hard hearts. We only come to him in brokenness. But it's in this spot that we actually are healed. It's in brokenness that he gets to show off his strength. The second bit of authority is he's going to share with us. He has the authority of the son in the next parable, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. And again, we get the Isaiah 5 picture of the vineyard. And he dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and then went into a far country. And now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers and they received, and that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And then, last of all, he sent his son, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked, miserable men and lease his vineyard to another vine dresser who will render to him the fruits of their season. And so we see the second place of authority, just like the son of the owner of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard here is God. The vineyard is Israel. And what do we see is throughout the history of Israel, uh, Stephen, uh, one of the leaders in the early church, he shared this right before they stoned him to death, after the death of Christ. He said, which one of the prophets did you not stone? Which one of the prophets did you not kill? And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see messengers being sent to the nation of Israel, warning them, trying to redirect them. And over and over and over again, what did they do? They killed them, and they drove them off. That's what Jesus is sharing. And so what does God do? He sends his son. He sends Jesus, the one who has authority, has rights to the vineyard. It's his vineyard in the first place. He sends him in to collect the fruit that was supposed to be grown. And yet, what do they do? They kill him. He shares exactly what's going to take place in just a couple days. They're going to take the son, the owner of the vineyard, and they're going to take him out, and they're going to take him outside the camp. Where was Golgotha located? Directly outside the walls of Jerusalem, outside the camp. And they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. And so Jesus, the king, the one who is, uh, has rightful authority, he is the owner of the temple, he is the owner of the vineyard, it's all his, all of it. Now then, in verse 41, what you'll notice is these men correctly prophesy their own demise. 
Notice that. They, they clearly say, he will destroy these wicked and miserable men and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. Who's he speaking of? The Gentiles. Other vine dressers are going to come in. They're going to they're raise fruit, and they're going to give it in due season. And so we see this exactly taking place. We're leading Jesus in verse 42 to say, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and what, and it is marvelous in our ears. Therefore I say to you, in verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, and whoever it falls, it will grind him into powder. And so Jesus gives additional insight into the story. He says, just as you cried out, by the way, uh, out of Psalm 118, you cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. The same psalm he pulls from, and he says uh, from that in verse 23 of, uh, 22 of uh, Psalm 118, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, in Jewish history, what we see is the temple, when it was originally built by King Solomon, they use these gigantic stones, this picture that's hard to see in the bottom right. These, are, these aren't from the time of Solomon, but from the time of uh, Herod the Great. But the stones are the same size. They would actually quarry them off-site, and they wanted no tool to be used on the Temple Mount. They didn't want the sound of any tools at all. And so the workers would be there, and each stone would be sent in one after another, and they would slide them into place perfectly. These things were thousands of tons, these massive stones to be erected. And they would slide into place perfectly. But Jewish tradition says that in the early goings, they sent a stone that didn't fit. It was a stone that didn't have a place. And so they believed they just made a misfabrication down at the quarry. And so they took that stone and they rolled it off of the Temple Mount, down into the Kidron Valley. And the stone sat down there at the bottom of the valley and they went on building their beautiful temple until it got time to wrap things up. And they realized, wait a minute, uh, we're missing a stone. Not only that, we're missing an important stone. It's called the cornerstone. This is a stone that actually locks uh, masonry structures into place. So they would be structurally sound and secure. We don't have the cornerstone. And so they call back up to the quarry. Hey, man, you sit the wrong stone over here. I don't know why they sound like they're from the East Coast, but they do in my head. What are you doing over here? And so the, the, the builders at the quarry, they go back to look at their logs and they, and they go back to research it only to find, wait a minute, that stone was actually sent early on. You, you should have already received a shipment. And they begin to, to talk amongst themselves, and they say, wait a minute, you don't think that that was the stone from early on. Remember a few years ago, we received this stone, and, and we cast it off. And they go down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley, and there with, with dirt and moss growing up on it, what do they find but the chief cornerstone? sitting there, the stone that they'd cast off. They'd rejected at the building site, and they bring it back, and that ends up being the stone that locks the temple together, that finishes its construction, that makes it structurally sound. Jesus is making it clear, I am that cornerstone. The stone of your traditions, that's me right here. Which is why throughout Scripture, we see people like the Apostle Paul say that for the Jews, he's a stumbling stone. For the Gentiles in Daniel chapter 2, he was a smiting stone, one they would strike against. But for the believer, for the believer, Paul would write to the Ephesians 
In Ephesians chapter 20, verse 2, this is what he would say. He said, And having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being himself the chief cornerstone. That he is our chief cornerstone. Our studies, our scriptures, they're built upon the apostles and the prophets. They're teaching and they're preaching for sure. That's why we, we seek to teach through the whole counsel of God. But they're not just simply built upon that. They're built upon the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Jesus tells these Pharisees, you search and search scriptures, that, thinking that in them you will find life, but the whole of the book speaks of me. It's all pointing back to the chief cornerstone. And so for the believer, this is our foundation. This is what we must be built upon. Now then in verse 45, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. I love these guys. What a bunch of buffoons. I think he's talking about us. Wait a minute. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And so they just are starting to realize, I think he's pointing the finger back our direction. And yet they do not turn. Look at what they choose to do. They try to actually find him to lay hands upon him, to kill him. Now then one final parable, as Jesus has shared that he gets his authority from the Father, secondly from the Son, thirdly, and this is more prophetic, he's going to say that I get my authority from the Holy Spirit. Chapter 22 and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Now, this is actually calling them back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Abraham actually sends out his head servant to go find a bride for his only begotten son, Isaac. And there he sends out a servant, a guy named Eleazar, to go into his homeland and find a, a bride to bring back for Isaac. Eleazar's name, by the way, and you can't make this up, is Comforter. What is the name for the Holy Spirit? Jesus says he is your Comforter. And so Abraham sends the Comforter back to Isaac's homeland to find him a bride. Find him a bride from where? The Gentiles. He didn't pick a bride from among his people. He picked him from the Gentiles. Eleazar goes and finds a bride for Isaac and brings the bride, Rebekah, back to him. And so I'd encourage you to read through that story with that new light. But that's precisely what the Holy Spirit does in our congregation, in our church. Remember, he's writing about the kingdom of heaven. This is speaking of the church age. What does the Holy Spirit do? He attracts, he draws, he calls people into himself to be what? A bride of Christ. Those that come to believe we are being made into brides of Jesus. And then in verse 3, they're being called into the wedding, and, but they were not willing to come. This is this first group. And again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle and killed all things are ready for this wedding. Come to the wedding. Verse 5, but they made light of it and went their, and went their ways, one, of his, one to his own farm and the other to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. And so we see that 
that the, the Jews have actually rejected not only the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's coming and calling, and they're rejecting the Spirit's draw and attraction. And so it leaves the Father no choice, the king in this story. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burnt up their city. Remember what I shared with you that was getting ready to happen to Jerusalem. It was going to be leveled. And then he said to those servants, the wedding is ready, in verse 8, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to the highways and as many as you would invite, invite to the wedding. Bring them all in. And so he says, go out to the Gentiles. Go to all the nations all around and invite them to what Revelation twenty-two seventeen tells us is the wedding supper of the Lamb. This great feast that's going to happen at the end of the age. And so in verse 10, and so the servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So as we shared in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, church is going to have good people who love Jesus, but it's also going to have bad people. They look just like all the rest. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, but they're going to be there in the kingdom of heaven. And so they're all brought there to fill the wedding hall, but, verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend... How did you come here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Much like the wheat and the tares, there will come a day where the wheat will be separated. Now then, we, we see that for those who were supposed to be at the wedding, they were to have the proper garments, the right attire on. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this about the bride of Christ. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And so this is what the bride is to be actually decorated in. The robes that they were to wear were robes of righteousness, but not robes of their own righteousness. Notice with me, he says, he would be gar- they would be clothed in clothing of his salvation. He has clothed me with a garment of salvation. In other words, you cannot work your way to earn your garment. He decides. He offers this gift of salvation to any who will call upon the name of the Lord. But in order to do this, we must first humble ourselves. That's usually the hardest part. I've got to humble myself to say, I need a Savior. I cannot do this on my own. I've had enough beating my head against the wall. This is precisely what's happened for those at the wedding feast. So all those who were humbled, much like what Jesus was saying about the rock there, the cornerstone, what did he say in the previous chapter? He said, for some will fall upon the stone and be broken. We're here to to be a place for the broken who fall upon the stone of Jesus. But for others who will not humble themselves, the stone is going to fall upon them, and they're going to be ground into powder. Humble yourself before you have to be humbled. That's the call. And so for those who are humbled, they actually receive the robe of righteousness. And then in verse 13, as we wrap up this morning, and then the king said to those servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him into outer darkness where there will be 
wailing and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so for true salvation, it comes from a spirit of humility. It doesn't come from being the greatest uh, worker, the greatest prayer warrior. It comes from those who are willing to just say, I need a Savior way bigger than me. And so for us, when we ask ourselves this question, who is the ultimate authority in my life? That for the Christian who can answer it in this way, I am guided by the Father, saved by the Son, they will then be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who's your authority in your life? If it's you, you're in a dangerous spot. If it's King Jesus, will you let him lead you and direct you and guide you? Then guess what? You got salvation on your side. And power is sure to follow. And so that's the promise. And Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you for the authority that we've been given by you to actually have the opportunity to be guided by you and saved by you and empowered by you. Thank you, Lord, for any that call upon your name shall be saved. And so as we wonder if we're called or if we're chosen, the answer is yes. We are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb by the Holy Spirit. And then because we are willing to humble ourselves, we are chosen by him. And so, Father, I just pray for any that are struggling with humility and humbling themselves that they would see that it is an opportunity to admit brokenness, to actually fall upon the chief cornerstone because we can't hold ourselves up. We need the cornerstone to hold us up. And so I pray for that in my own life, Lord. Thank you for loving me enough to overturn tables and the things that I've let back into the temple, the seat that I've allowed to take place. Father, please continue to cleanse it daily. And thank you for the way you restore us to be a people of prayer and faith. Father, I pray that for Woodlawn Chapel. I pray that for the people gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand for a closing song? Lord Jesus
justice and all will be new your name forever faithful and true Jesus is coming soon like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church ready for you every heart longing for our king we sing even so says amen thank you guys so much yeah happy father's day and you know i just want to uh, i think i've shared with you before but as we were planting woodlawn chapel and asking god you know what he was looking for out of this congregation and, and out of us especially planting a church in a pandemic it didn't seem like the greatest uh, idea in the world like there's churches closing and you want us to open one and uh, what God shared with me was Isaiah 61, verse 10, that we just went over. That what he's up to is actually a, a purifying of his bride. That he's looking to have a people that actually want to be at church. And so I want to encourage you guys this week. You're here because you want to be here. Uh, you've got all the reasons, all the excuses in the world not to come. I mean, there's a global pandemic, for goodness sakes. You know, there's, there's lots of reasons for you not to be here. And yet you are. And so as God's working things out, and, and authority is always a challenge, I want to encourage you to know that he is purifying his bride. And so good work. Keep going. Keep coming. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Because he's up to stuff. 
uh, in your lives. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week. Don't forget about uh, children's